0: What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattoo Historian. Great to be back on here for another week and bringing to you some cool podcasts, some cool history. I'm really excited for the future of my brand and of your history brands. If you're out there doing it, it is the best time to be doing it. Honestly, this is the greatest time to be utilizing podcasts, live streams, video to get the historical narrative across. And I'm so excited for all of your projects that I've been hearing about. You've been contacting me about these things, and I am very excited for all of you who are doing it. I'm very glad that a lot of you are tuning in to new podcasts, and there's plenty of them coming up. But you keep those of us who've been doing it a while in mind, and I'm very, very appreciative of that. This week, we have Dr. Spencer McBride on the program. We interviewed him back in May. I wanted to bring it to you here as a podcast so you can get the audio version of that because I know a number of you don't watch the live streams. You rather listen to the podcast, and I know some of my followers also have certain disabilities where they would rather listen to it, and they're more apt to listen on podcasts. So I love the accessibility of the platform and of the media. So here we are bringing out Dr. Spencer McBride to talk about His book, Joseph Smith for President, The Prophet, The Assassins, and the Fight for American Religious Freedom. Uh, Spencer earned his Ph.D. from Louisiana State University, and he's also uh, the Associate Managing Historian of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He was a a great interview. I really enjoyed having him on. Uh, The book that we were talking about, was published last year by cornell university press you can find it uh, on the press website you can find it on amazon again the title of the book is joseph smith for president the prophet the assassins and the fight for american religious freedom everybody let's have a listen to what dr spencer mcbride has to say about this interesting individual in the 19th century joining us for tonight's live stream presentation with dr spencer mcbride this evening we're gonna be talking about his newest book entitled joseph smith for president the prophet the assassins and the fight for american religious freedom among many other topics that i'm sure we'll cover which will uh you know pique some of your interest especially if you're in grad school undergrad thinking about writing and researching we'll go over all that this evening uh Dr. Spencer McBride is an Associate Managing Historian of the Joseph Smith Papers Project and the author of multiple books on religion and American politics. His writing about the evolving role of religion in American political culture appeared in the Washington Post and Desiree News. Spencer is also the creator and host of The First Vision, a Joseph Smith Papers podcast. In 2016, the University of Virginia Press released his book entitled Pulpit and Nation, Clergyman and the Politics of Revolutionary America, part of the Jeffersonian America series. In 2020, his second book, Contingent Citizens Shifting Perceptions of Latter day Saints in American Political Culture, was released by Cornell University Press. And this month, his newest book, entitled Joseph Smith for President, The Prophet, The Assassins, and the Fight for American Religious Freedom, was released by the Oxford University Press. Spencer, thank you so much for being here, my friend. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. That's an amazing list of accomplishments so far in your life. And it's, it, it runs the gamut of digital history, monographs, uh, and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. When did this, you know, curiosity and history first begin for you? Yeah. So
1: I grew up in a family that, you know, historical conversation was ever present. Um, And maybe this is common, but, but, you know, my father was a history major who went into, to work in business. So, so he never, you know, pursued history as a profession. Most of my, most of my aunts and uncles were also history majors who went into some other profession. And so, you know, they were very well versed, well interested. History was always at the family dinner table. We were the family that like stopped at historical markers um, and I even complained about it. So it wasn't like I was always excited as a kid to <laughs> take a detour on a road trip to go see a historical marker. But I remember right. I grew up in California and okay. dotting, um, the California landscape are these old Catholic missions that were built, um, yeah. uh, before California was part of the United States. And I think we saw like 19 or 20 of those. And Before the fa- finally the family revolted, and, and that was the end of those. So, so history was always kind of present. And, and, and this may sound weird to say, but I've known I've wanted to be a historian since I was 13, mm. and and part of that's luck. Like you know, before I'd said, "Hey, I want to be a historian," I wanted to play second base for the San Diego Padres. Right? But, <laughs> right. That's that's not a bad you know plan B is, yeah. is yeah, like baseball. <laughs> um, but what that looked like changed over time. And in many ways, I just got lucky that, you know, I, I, I went to college, and I declared history as my major, and, and it's common for someone to declare a major, and then very quickly realize, that's not what they want to do, or something else is more enticing. Right. And so for me, I just got lucky, I declared history, and I fell even more in love with history, in my college classes. And, but what a career as a historian looked like, was kind of this ever moving target. Um, at one point, I was thinking I wanted to teach history at the, the secondary level, you know, at, at a high school somewhere. Um, for a long time, I was thinking, no, I should go to grad school and 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 teach as a professor. Um, and while that interested me for a very long time, the job market is such that it forces many in grad school very early on to kind of broaden their, their scope. Right. What are the different careers in history what are the different ways I can use this education to make a living, but also find fulfillment in my work? And so, mm-hmm. you know, again, maybe not a common story. Someone says I want to be a historian when they're 13. but I consider myself very lucky and fortunate to, to kind of be doing what I wanted to do when I was a kid.
0: Yeah, that's awesome because some of us, uh, some of us are still figuring out what we want to do. You know, I and mean, we're in our, our 30s or late 20s or something like that. And some of us, that clicks right away, but maybe you don't know how to utilize it, right? It's like, how do you do history? And yeah. What do you do with that education?
1: Yeah, and increasingly, there's, you, you, you know, it's still tough. It's still tough to get a history degree and find a job that pays yeah. enough um, to support you and if you want a family. Um, so in saying that, you know, look outside the traditional jobs, it's not like there's some you know magic bullet that's going to answer all those those um, problems or all those questions mm-hmm. but I think there is more diversity there are more diverse ways of using historical training than we often think um, mm-hmm. often it's always so focused on teaching either at the secondary or, or a collegiate level that you know we kind of miss these other opportunities and so we train people for those you know limited opportunities when if we adjust history education we can prepare generations of historians to do so many different things
0: right yeah it's it's something that i know i found when i have to go mentor students at university sometimes they're they've been trained almost in tunnel vision that, uh, you know, 90% of the class wants to go for a PhD because that's how they're trained or that's what do you think? That's all there is to it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like half of you probably don't want to do that. You're just being told, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that this is the only thing you can do. And uh, it's kind of interesting to think of it that way. And when you went to undergrad, Spencer, and, and were proceeding into grad school, what were some of those challenges that came up where you're like, maybe I should go this direction with my degree or my career me some, uh, I don't know, I don't want to use the term curveballs thrown your way because there aren't many, but sometimes you reach a point where you, you're like, maybe I should take it this way.
1: Yeah. So, so I, you know, the idea that I might teach at the secondary level was still kind of in the back of my mind when I entered undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I got into my upper division history classes and we were reading these monographs, um, you know, you know, these just deeply researched books on history, um, sometimes very specialized, I did. I loved it. I loved the idea not only of reading it and being able to share that information, but there was this this deep desire to be one of the people writing history. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the person in the archive, working with the old letters, you know, dead people's mail, as <laughs> they sometimes joke with. <laughs> I wanted right. to be that guy. I wanted right. to be in libraries, museums, archives. I wanted to be writing books. And yeah, maybe they're not gonna reach a ton of people, but they're gonna find those other interested people who will read it and um, have these aha moments, just like I was having. And so that was a major turning point for me. Mm -hmm. That was where I became really focused on, I want to produce history. Um, I I want to be the person researching and writing, not just a consumer of history. Mm -hmm.
0: Your interest in, religion and religious history what did, did that blossom out of going into all those missions when you were a kid it's kind of like that maybe intrigued <laughs> yeah. you a little bit or did that come along later
1: you know you know, you know in part it did I, I remember one of the um one of the research papers i did as an undergrad was about the calif the, the franciscan missions in california but it was it's the connection of religion to politics um you know i i often say i'm a historian of religion and politics I'm probably more um, more into the political side, but I love seeing the intersection of the two. And that's what I saw with those California missions, these Franciscan missions, how they served a colonizing purpose, um, but they also served a purpose of, you know, boots on the ground, essentially. Claims of North and South America from these European colonizers were never actually well established until you had people on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so these California missions were a way of getting Spanish people on the ground, yes, in their colonizing role, but also as a way of protecting their claim um, from encroachment by other European powers. So all of a sudden these missions that, you know, I, some I've gone to willingly, others I've been kind of dragged to, right. um, all of a sudden I was able to look at them in a totally new way and see political and or geopolitical strategy in religion. And, and for me, finding those connections is just so exciting. I'm not, I, I, I like to think I'm not overly cynical, but I think there's such thing as a healthy dose of cynicism and we can look into the way that religion and politics are mixed and you need a healthy dose of cynicism. If we just accept it on face value, we're going to assume that one in the United States, one political party is the godly party and the other is not. Mm-hmm, right because one cu- party quotes the bible and, <laughs> and 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 you need that healthy dose of cynicism and that critical thinking to really kind of see behind the curtain and understand
0: all of the different motives at play mm, that's so well put it's like uh everything better in moderation including cynicism yeah th- that's right you, i mean you, if you become too
1: cyni- uh, cynical you're not really going to enjoy life at all yeah, so yeah. You, need a, you need a
0: healthy dose of cynicism I think. exactly What's it been like working on the Joseph Smith paper, Spencer? Yeah, you know, I have loved it. This was not
1: in all the different things that I thought my career could be, you know, as that um, 13-year-old who who abandoned his dreams and second base for the Padres. Uh, (laughs) uh, Documentary editing was something I only was introduced to in graduate school. This idea of, and for those that don't know, documentary editing is when you – Um, collect all the surviving documents that a a famous man or woman, often political or religious leader, but not not always, um, published or all the letters they sent, all the letters they received, and, and you transcribe them and you make them available to the public either online or in print or both. It's essentially creating this vast resource for scholars of that subject. And so this idea that I would be a documentary editor working with Joseph Smith's surviving documents was never on my mind until late in grad school as a possibility that I could work in this field. And I love it. I, I have an office in an archive and they bring the documents right to my office, which is just a thrill. I surround myself by old, by books and, and old letters, you know, dead people's mail again. And And I take these deep dives, you know, we make sure the transcriptions, right. So there's something really rewarding about taking historical documents and making accessible to anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, history for anyone who's interested, but then also having the time and resources to dive in deep because we write the footnotes and introductions that help people understand the letters. And this means I get to go down some really interesting rabbit holes, just as, as, as a really random example we were working on a document. Um, Joseph Smith was the leader of the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. And they were building a city in Western Illinois called Nauvoo. And they were building a giant temple there. And someone writes, well, if we decide to use a tin roof, we should look at Cornwall, England to, to source the tin. And so I spent the better part of a day researching tin mining in <laughs> Cornwall just for a single footnote. Yeah. And so rabbit hole of rabbit holes. Wow. And I loved it
0: yeah it's like when you it's like when you look at old newspapers and some rando article that you find is like what are they even talking about i need to find out what this is about so yeah i can totally see that where you have to do the historiographical analysis right for for the document and you have to say what does this document say what are they talking about um and you have to go down those rabbit holes sometimes and it's it's really interesting and it's like being a detective
1: Yeah. And and, you know, sometimes you come up empty, right? Sometimes you come up and someone's reviewing your work and says, well, doesn't this sentence deserve a footnote? Shouldn't we identify this person place or thing and get to say, look, I've looked in every census record. I've looked, I've looked in every newspaper I could find I'm stumped. And sometimes we admit defeat, but other times Mm -hmm. it's so rewarding when you find the right source that tells you the right information.
0: When you started, uh, doing digitization with these papers and, and working with, uh, all these original documents. How has that experience molded you as a historian?
1: Yeah. You know, I think as a political historian, it's easy to become enamored with, or, or focused on characters who are kind of the big national players. Mm-hmm. I mean, and while I define my work more political culture, which, you know, forces you to, you know, look beyond just the politicians. And to understand what American voters are thinking, you know what's influencing their actions. I think when you get into somebody's day-to-day life, um, mm-hmm. you see a more three-dimensional um, portrait of these historical figures. I mean, you learn a lot by reading somebody's mail. And well, well that's not me right. encouraging you, you know, people to go <laughs> read the neighbors' mailboxes. <laughs>
0: yeah, um,
1: but you read somebody's mail both the exciting, the big events, but also kind of the mundane, normal events. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I, it may sound a little sentimental, but for this kind of ever-present question many of us historians have, where the people of the past like us. And, mm-hmm. and I think you see that in many ways, the technology of their world seems very different, mm-hmm. but in their emotional experience and their human experience, the people of the past are a lot more like us than they are different. And there's something, I think, there's something exciting intellectually about that as a historian. But I think as a human, there's something really meaningful uh, to, to think of the people who occupied the world before we did and had emotional experiences in the same places we did. And that people will come after us and their experiences might be different in terms of technology, but their emotional experience might actually be very similar to
0: ours. hmm. Yeah. That's, that's very well put. It's, it's amazing when we have that personal connection with the past, how it just clicks. And it's like, oh, these were real people. And they said some weird things in this letter or whatever else. And, you know, uh, it's, it's really interesting to get in that personal thing. And did that experience with these, uh, these primary sources in that format with that project, is that what influenced you to write this latest book? Yes, yeah, so,
1: so Joseph Smith for president I don't know, for for our viewers. Here's, yeah, here's yep. I would say, in the flesh, but I guess it's <laughs> not really flesh. Um, yeah. So this, when I first started on the Joseph Smith Papers project about seven years ago, mm-hmm. some of the very first documents I was looking at uh, had to do with Joseph Smith's trip to Washington D.C. in 1839. Um, the Mormons had been expelled from the state of Missouri uh, after a very violent. Um, conflict with non-Mormon neighbors, uh, and they were expelled under threat of state-sanctioned extermination. The governor of Missouri issued an executive, uh, an executive order saying the Mormons must be driven from the state or exterminated. Hmm. Um, and so, this is a very, a very tough situation. This leads Joseph Smith to go to. He's not a political person by nature, but it forces him to go to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Martin Van Buren, to petition Congress for redress and reparations for what had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are some of the very first documents I'm working on once I joined you know, the project, transcribing them, researching um, the context so we can write annotation. Mm-hmm. And it just got me thinking about this, this re- leader of a religious minority group who is not an experienced politician. He's not educated in the law, but he's living this experience in a, a country that claims to value and champion champion freedom and religious freedom. Hmm. And here he is going to the political powers that be and saying, hey, we love the country. We love our constitution, but you know what? It's not working for us. Hmm. There's something wrong with the constitution. If we can be expelled from a state under threat of extermination and the federal government claims we can do nothing for you. Essentially the federal government claimed that because of the state's rights doctrines, Mm -hmm. they could not intervene. And and so I'm fascinated by this because here's someone again, that would never probably have been running for political office in any other circumstances. And here he is not as this, um, super experienced or, uh, exceptionally astute observer of politics is just saying, hey, my experience is saying there's something wrong in our country if this
0: can happen and there's no avenue for redress. Yeah. yeah, because we we often hear states' rights to self-govern as the form of are we going to be free or have slavery in a territory or, <laughs> or a state? This is a story we don't often hear about is how our religious minorities at the time treated in the states and how does that pertain to the supposed right of the state what they do to these people i didn't realize that uh came into being so much until uh your work and it's like okay this is a different way of looking at the understanding of the bill of rights and and stuff like this that i'm sure smith had pointed to when he went to washington right yeah so so you're absolutely right most of the narrative around states rights uh
1: in in the history of antebellum america or or you know pre-civil war america is this idea of slavery Slavery's when people are talking about states rights they're really talking about slavery mm-hmm. yes there's some people that believe yet yeah, this is the best form of governance but <laughs> you know many of these slave enslavers they don't want the federal government you know meddling with slavery unless it help strengthen slavery, then they're all for it, right? So so it's right. you kind know, of this political opportunism. Right. Um and, and I, I do think that's rightfully front and center in histories of states' rights mm-hmm. as a political idea, as a political strategy. Mm-hmm. That is the most significant utilization or kind of um categorization of of states rights. But overlooked is its effect on religious freedom, on religious minority groups there is nothing in the state's rights philosophy of governance that has to do with religion on the surface. Mm -hmm. It is a religiously benign philosophy. Um, there's no, in fact, it's, it's mute on the the topic of, of religion. But what Joseph Smith was saying is that in its implementation, it had a discriminatory effect against religious minority groups. And he's not the only one. Um, the shakers, uh, a, a group who ve- very prevalent in New York, um, Pennsylvania, you know, the Northeast, but then moving into Indiana in that area. But but the, the Shakers in New York, they held all property in common. And they also believed in pacifism. So, the, so when New York had a law that you must, all men must serve in the state militia or pay a fee or, or a fine. Right that essentially amounted on a tax on a religious community to the shakers because shaker men as pacifists would not serve in the militia but since they hold all property in common the state was essentially um taxing a religious group for a religious doctrine right and Mm -hmm. so they're also this kind of very small group that's saying hey states rights is having this problem here we need the intervention of the federal government Uh, and and you get another case down with father bernard promoli and and the catholics and in um in new orleans that goes up to the supreme court so the people that are calling for the bill of rights to apply to the individual states for a federal government strong enough to intervene to protect minority groups are leaders of minority religious groups Mm -hmm. joseph smith the shakers father sorry father bernard (laughs) promoli these aren't constitutional scholars these aren't people who have dedicated their lives to studying the law and and enacting government reform they are just people who are saying something's wrong and we need to fix Mm -hmm. it and so here they are on the vanguard of this constitutional reform they are unsuccessful um, but following the civil war the 14th amendment essentially makes what they were calling
0: for a reality Mm -hmm. so when when uh, this is the original Mr. Smith goes to Washington in my head. That's right. Uh, this is what I always think of when I think of Joseph Smith going to Washington.
1: Yeah, I, I, I liked that title. And it turns out someone had written a yeah. journal article with that title. So I was like, oh, oh yeah. man, someone, oh. someone beat me to that title. Oh,
0: man. That's, I mean, that's when I maybe found your work. I'm like, oh, that's that's the original. Um, when he goes to Washington, I'm sure Martin Van Buren probably isn't too interested, right? In what he's saying. Yeah. You know, these are the days
1: where a common American could knock on the door of the White House. The the president would entertain guests in his parlor every afternoon. And so so they weren't getting necessarily a private meeting, but it's still pretty remarkable in our own day and age that someone like Joseph Smith could just go knock on the door. Right. And so they actually had to compete for Van Buren's time and attention. Uh, and, And they make their case and they give them some letters of recommendation explaining the situation and I don't think from all that I've researched, I don't think Van Buren held any personal prejudice against the Mormons. Mm -hmm. I don't think his inaction, his refusal to help the Mormons has anything to do with prejudice, at least none that's evident in the historical record, Mm -hmm. but he essentially says, I cannot help you or I will lose the vote in Missouri. Hmm. So from Van Buren, it was political calculation, right? that I'm not going to help this religious minority group because it's going to hurt me politically. And with Congress, there's actually a a hearing in the Senate um, Judiciary Committee, not of whether or not they should grant the Mormons redress and reparations, but does Congress have any jurisdiction in this case? And they decide no. So again, states rights philosophy comes into play. I don't necessarily think any members of that Senate committee held any prejudice or were at least open in expressing prejudice against the mormons. Mm-hmm. So again we see that the obstacles to universal religious freedom uh you know religious intolerance is rooted in prejudice and bigotry. Mm-hmm. But it's also upheld and emboldened um by policies and political actors who may not hold those um same prejudices themselves if that makes sense.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, that got got me thinking about if Martin Van Buren is is not doesn't seem to be against the Mormons, and maybe some members of of Congress aren't. Uh, but they but they they're worried about the states' right issue. What? Why does the governor issue this decree in Missouri to 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 uh, make them go away or to purge them from Missouri?
1: Yeah. So the Latter-day Saints would gather. So if someone joined the the, the Mormon church, the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, um, often they would be encouraged once they were able to, to leave where, if they joined the church living in Massachusetts, you know, some would stay, but many were encouraged to go and live with the other Latter-day Saints. And so which from a religious perspective, made sense for such a small group. Um, but as they grew, They became a socioeconomic presence wherever they were. So when they were in Missouri, they were never the majority in Missouri, but in the counties in which they lived, they could essentially sway Mm. uh, elections. They could um, exercise a lot of influence on the economy, right? And they feared, oh, these Mormons are only going to do business with other Mormons. Um, and, And then, of course, there was religious prejudice in Missouri. In Missouri, there was prejudice that, you know, they would claim that this was all just kind of a socioeconomic plot under the disguise of religion. They would call it a fake religion. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that's how they, ju- the Missourians justified mob violence, saying this isn't really a religion. It's a mm-hmm. fake religion, mm-hmm. um, just because it wasn't Protestant Christianity. Um, right. And so whenever they issued their proclamations of why they were going to take violence against the Mormons, it was always citing these socioeconomic reasons, but then also, um, you know, lacing it with religious prejudice. And Joseph Smith would argue, you know, 1839, he goes to D.C. meets with Van Buren. He comes up empty, but he petitions Congress every year until his death in 1844. And essentially saying if the federal government does nothing, it's going to embolden Mob, you know those who perpetrate mob violence. Governor, like the governor of Missouri, they used mob violence to push out an unwanted group, mm-hmm. and they got away with it. Right. What's to stop them from doing it
0: again? Right. Who's next? Exactly. Basically. You know, it's it's us today. It's going to be you tomorrow. Basically, and, and not to totally give away the book, but one
1: of the closing scenes is 1954, or sorry, 1854. You know, the Mormons have, uh, the majority of the Mormons have already followed Brigham Young out to Utah. So, yeah, spoiler alert, right? Joseph Smith doesn't win the presidency. <laughs> right? Um, uh, but David Acheson, a, a sitting United States senator who had been one of the militia leaders who had expelled the Mormons. Mm. In 1854, Senator Acheson writes to Secretary of War Jefferson Davis. Yes, that Jefferson Davis. Mm-hmm. About the abolitionists coming into Missouri during Bleeding Kansas. Mm-hmm. And essentially says, you know, here's a new unwanted minority group, and this time a political minority. And he writes his plan of action to Jefferson Davis, saying, we will be forced to burn, hang, and rob. Um, we intend to Mormonize them. Wow. And he actually uses the word Mormon. Wow. He turned Mormon into a verb for using mob violence to expel an unwanted group. Right. They'd gotten away with it with the Mormons. They were, in fact, emboldened to do it again. And, in fact, were so um, direct in what they were doing that they even used Mormon as a verb.
0: Yeah. That's what I was going to say. They They were so good at it, they're going to turn it into a movement itself against others and call it that. It's kind of like how when we we put gate at the end of every thing right. because of Watergate. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, that's that's amazing that that he used the term Mormonize. We're going to have to Mormonize them. That's that's incredible.
1: Yeah, that's, and, and this is what Joseph or Joseph Smith declared. He said the state's rights doctrines are what feed mobs. Hmm. That that this idea that we needed a, a stronger federal government. He didn't want a larger federal government, but he wanted a federal government empowered to protect minority groups when mm. states failed to do so. That's right. cool.
0: what. When does he decide, I have to do this on my own and I have to run for the presidency? Yeah, so he declares his candidacy in January of 1844.
1: Um, a few months, or a couple months earlier, he'd written to the five men expected to run for presidency, for the presidency. So John C. Calhoun, Lewis Cass, these are familiar names to many, right? Henry Clay, Martin Van Beer, and Richard Mentor Johnson. Only three, essentially saying, what would your policy be toward us as a people if you were elected? And, and essentially saying, hey, we may not be a, a majority, but you're going to get all the Mormon votes if you answer this right, is, is the implication. Mm-hmm. Um, only three respond, Henry Clay is kind of his, um, if you've read anything about Henry Clay, <laughs> no one wanted to be president more than Henry Clay right and he's like your ultimate politician right he expresses sympathy but mm-hmm. kind of like doesn't want to commit to anything <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> yeah. whereas lewis cass and john c calhoun both come out and say hey we sympathize for your situation but states rights is supreme there's nothing we can do to help you mm-hmm. it's a, the federal government is powerless and it's only then that joseph realizes joseph smith realizes i have to do something He runs as an independent candidate. He was serious about his campaign. I I think he was realistic that he wasn't going to win, but maybe some good would come of this campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, But even as they're doing this, there's something about being a minority group pushed into a corner that forces often forces these groups to think creatively about the law and politics. So if the problem for the Mormons was the state's rights doctrine Joseph, run, Joseph Smith running for president was one way to solve it, if he won. Mm-hmm. At the same exact time, they are petitioning Congress to make the city of Nauvoo, Illinois, a federal city, like Washington, D.C. Right. So essentially take it out of Illinois so that state rights isn't a problem anymore. Hmm. Um, they also petitioned Congress to put Joseph Smith as a general in the United States Army. Which would then get around states' rights. If mobs came upon the Latter day Saints at Nauvoo, he could lead the army to protect them. And they were also in negotiations with Sam Houston about occupying the Nueces Strip, that contested yep. area, that contested border between Mexico and Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Houston needed settlers there to substantiate his claim. And the Latter day Saints came with their own militia unit. So it was like a win win. Um, those ultimately fizzled out. But all of these options were on the table. So Joseph Smith was serious about his run for president, but he hadn't put all his eggs in that metaphorical basket. He was looking for other solutions. But the one commonality in all of them is they were trying to get around the state's rights
0: doctrine. Mm. Mm -hmm. The the one thing that I was uh, reading up on with his candidacy that really was striking was that he wasn't only looking at religious liberty. Let's say he's looking at liberty in general. He's got an, almost an abolitionist mindset here of and and I'm sure that's going to irritate Calhoun and everybody oh, else, you know, because well, it's almost like, a, you know, uh, this is what is in the Constitution. Uh, I think I, I think I, I read somewhere where you described it as popular constitutionalism. That's right. right. And it's like that makes perfect sense if it, if this is what the Constitution says, that, you know all men are created equal and the Declaration of Independence says the same thing in certain words, then abolition should be on the ticket.
1: Yeah, Joseph Smith starts his campaign, his campaign pamphlet, this pamphlet with his platform, lamenting that the Declaration of Independence declares that all men are created equal, yet millions are enslaved simply because, and the way he phrases it, simply because their souls are covered with a different color skin than ours. Mm. Wow. and Joseph Smith one of those people that had kind of an evolution in his views on race, which is common in this time period. It's easy to think of Abraham Lincoln and these others as almost being born with this kind of progressive view on racial, you know, on, on being anti-slavery and, and for some greater degree of uh, of racial equality. You know, Joseph Smith's not necessarily a model in that, but here he is at this point in 1844 calling for the abolition of slavery. And he has this really pragmatic way of doing it. He, and he calls for a massive system of paid emancipation. Essentially the federal government is going to buy the freedom of enslaved men and women. They will pay the enslavers for their slaves. Ideologically, this is problematic, right? Because in paying the enslavers, you're acknowledging that the slaves are property, but in Promoting abolition, you're saying man should not be held as property. But Joseph Smith's thinking very pragmatically here. Let's mm-hmm. have the federal government buy the freedom of all enslaved men and women, and that will solve the slavery issue, at least how, mm-hmm. how Joseph portrayed it. It, it was a non starter, of course, but we see him trying to be very pragmatic in
0: his approach. Hmm. He's that's also, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that's interesting because Lincoln thinks the same thing at one time. He's thinking about buying. Uh, yeah. Buying people from uh, from the plantations and saying, "Now you're free," and we just we just gave the plantation owners all this money, but at least you're free. And yeah. that, paid right.
1: emancipation isn't new,
0: yeah. but at, it's
1: unheard of at the scale that Joseph Smith is calling for. Mm-hmm. Um, he also calls for the closing of the of um, prisons, this, especially the penitentiaries, which were relatively new at this time. He saw solitary confinement and kind of the way that prisoners were treated in this kind of growing prison system uh, as not reforming men and, and to a lesser extent, you know, female inmates, he saw it as creating almost a permanent criminal class. Hmm. And so, you know, prison criminal justice reform needed to be enacted so that we, when men are guilty of crimes, They are truly reformed, which was the goal of the penitentiaries to reform criminals. But he was saying it's not working. In fact, it's having the opposite effect. It's creating a permanent criminal class. Hmm. Um, He's calling for the expansion of territorial expansion, which was the hot issue of that election. You know, let's claim all of Oregon. Let's annex Texas and let's spread through Canada, Mexico eventually. Um, so, 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 yeah, religious freedom. The empowerment of the federal government to protect minorities, that's the heart of Joseph Smith's presidential campaign, but he's not a one-issue candidate. Mm -hmm. He has this robust, progressive platform.
0: How does he see uh, – he's got this robust platform garnered around religious and independent freedom or individual freedoms, but yet he's talking about some similar things that many others are talking about Washington, which is the territorial expansion – going into Canada, Mexico, and all this stuff. So he's also a man of his time in that way, right? Where he, uh, there's this idea of expanding the nation to as many places as possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And he has this line, which wasn't unusual, but you kind of scratch your head a bit, that this expansion to into the West mm-hmm. beyond Oregon and Texas needs to occur with the permission of Native Americans. Hmm. Uh, which, I mean, was never going to happen. Right. Is this just kind of a, a what, to use a present day term a virtual, uh, you know, a virtue signal? Um, mm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I've all for all the answers I found in my research. I have so many questions that <laughs> are still unanswered. But yeah, you see, and in some of his political speeches, yes, he's calling for the abolition of slavery, you know, the paid emancipation. But there's like many others who were anti-slavery of that day. There's some still some hesitance about can this entire population of former slaves still live peacefully among their former enslavers, which was an open question, right? Some were anti-slavery, but not didn't want you know wanted wanted they were in favor of colonizing societies, right? Let's send freed freed enslaved men and women. to Liberia for instance Mm -hmm. Uh, Joseph Smith does put forth the possibility that if we annex Texas that could be a great place for former slaves to be resettled Mm -hmm. Um, how serious he was about that is unclear but he kind of floats it as an idea so in many ways even though he's very progressive in many of his policies he is still a person of the 1840s in the United States And his views are still very much informed by that time and place.
0: How viable is his his candidacy? Or or was it kind of like a, a poking the bear kind of thing? Where it's like, I'm going to show you what I really think of the situation that my followers are in. Or is it something that's more serious than that for him? Is he really doing it to do it? Or is he doing it to make a statement?
1: Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. In fact, they, they approach someone to be his running mate. And he asked, essentially, is this like a PR stunt, right? Is this a way of getting attention to your plight, mm-hmm. um, to making the public aware of what's been happening? Or are you serious? Mm-hmm. And and Joseph Smith's clerk writes back and essentially says, yes, it will have that PR effect. They didn't use the word PR, but right. but, but essentially, but we also intend to elect him. And this is interesting. I don't think Joseph Smith thought he would be elected, but he—if it was all about public relations—you wouldn't necessarily. He, he sent out an army of missionaries, you know, people that are usually, you know, preaching to make converts. Mm-hmm. He sent them out to electioneer, to campaign, to canvass the entire country. Um, that's a pretty big PR campaign if that's all it is. Yeah. But not only that, they have conventions in every single state at which they select electors. Mm -hmm. Now, selecting electors is like the ultimate political infrastructure. Mm -hmm. In as many presidential elections as I've voted in, I cannot tell you the name of the elector who I was actually Mm -hmm. voting for, right? Right. Elector, if it's all public Mm -hmm. relations, electors don't matter. There's no reason to choose electors if it's only public relations. So clearly there was a Mm -hmm. sense that he could win with divine intervention that he's not going to win naturally but maybe just maybe he might win one state mm-hmm. uh, and get and if it's a if it's a an election that's so close maybe it throws him into you know the house of representatives along with the election Um or maybe a candidate sees his candidacy as a threat maybe the whigs say hey Joseph Smith's gonna to pull too many votes away. He's a minority candidate, but he's gonna pull so many votes away from us. We can adopt some of what he's saying into our platform or maybe the Democrats. And, and ultimately that is what happens in the election of 1844, not with Joseph Smith, James G. Bernie, another outside candidate running with the Liberty party, one issue party abolished slavery. Yeah. Bernie's never going to win. Right. He pulls enough votes from the Whigs in New York that Henry Clay loses New York, and loses the election. Mm -hmm. And so, third-party candidates aren't significant to history because they were viable candidates. That's not why we study them. Some people have tried to make cases that, like in these like weird, out there situations, Joseph Smith could have been elected. It wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. But these these third-party candidates are significant to our study of political culture and and American history because they, they illuminate a certain level of discontent among the population of Americans. Here's a group that's saying the status quo is not good enough. The status quo is not working for us. Let's try something different. And that's what people like James G. Bernie and Joseph Smith in the election of 1844 highlight is Mm -hmm. there were people that weren't going to vote Whig or Democrat democratic because the status quo was failing them. Let's understand the people who voted and supported and canvassed for third party candidates, because that's going to teach us about significant pockets of discontent with American democracy.
0: And it seems like that works to this day for people who are threatening a third party all the time. It's like, well, let's see what they have in mind and maybe we can put it in our platform and then they go away. That's the idea of just let them go away. And it's never serious. To a large extent for a lot of people, it's more like let's uh, like like people who are ingrained in the two party system uh, there. The third party is always the the party is kind of like, OK, we hear you, but we, you know, don't take you seriously. And it's kind of interesting that that was still evident in the 1840s and it could still transfer certain things in the political platforms to the major parties, you know, the Whigs and the Democrats and and, and all that. That's really interesting that, you know, uh, he's basically like the Ralph Nader of <laughs> yeah, time, yeah. trying to incorporate yeah. things on a different level, you know, obviously. Um, yeah. and,
1: and I just add that, you know, a month before Joseph Smith was assassinated, um, Charles Francis Adams, you know, the son of John Quincy Adams, Grandson of John Adams and his friend, Josiah Quincy, whose father was um, president of Harvard. Josiah Quincy, a few years later, would be mayor of Boston. These two men are on this great tour of the West and their boat stops at Nauvoo and they get off and they spend the entire day with Joseph Smith. So here are these two people from some of the most illustrious political families in the United States, riding around in a carriage, touring Nauvoo and the surrounding countryside with, with the Mormon prophet. And he essentially when they start talking about politics, he starts saying essentially, you know, one day we might hold the balance of power between the parties. So not saying we would be the majority. Joseph Smith is saying we'll hold that balance of power where where we're essentially kingmakers. And if the parties are pretty evenly divided, the Mormon vote is going to be the deciding vote. And that gives these minority groups
0: leverage that they don't have
1: by numbers. They only have by position.
0: Mm. As going, going through this and talking with uh, people about your book and, and doing, I'm sure uh, various Zooms about the book and, and Joseph Smith in general, through doing your work with the Joseph Smith papers and the podcast, which we're going to touch on in a moment. uh, What's one thing that my audience should take away from, Smith that maybe is kind of like a misconception of, of yeah. Joseph Smith.
1: Yeah, I think it's really easy to, uh, especially with minority religious groups and especially minority religious groups in 19th century America to write, to, to use terms like weird or just kind of out there. Um, and I think when you dive into the lives as seen through the historical documents, you realize that you know members of the Shaker community or even Catholics were a religious minority then, right. um, or, or Mormons or these other religious minority groups. Yeah, their beliefs put them outside mainstream Protestantism, um, and and I guess that kind of isolates them a bit. But their day to day lives are generally not all that different from the lives of other Americans of that time. That while it's easy to write off religious minorities as just kind of being weird or too far you know, beyond the margins of society, most of the time they're very much in society and of society. And so, so someone may have zero interest in Joseph Smith's religious teachings, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. What this book's arguing isn't that you should pay attention to Joseph Smith's religious teachings. It's saying his story matters, not just to Mormons today as, Hey, look what the, the founder of, of your church did when he was alive. You know, essentially saying this story matters to all Americans who want to understand the fight for equality uh, and freedom in the United States. That, yes, we celebrate the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as enshrining these national ideals, mm-hmm. but they did not make those ideals a reality. It took time and years, and we're still in that struggle for equal rights. And, and so, yeah, Joseph. If you don't care about Joseph Smith's religious ideas, that's fine. The argument of this book is he matters to the story of American freedom, and specifically religious freedom, um, mm-hmm. which is a story that still matters today.
0: Mm-hmm. What has it been like uh, doing your podcast, The First Vision? How's that? Uh, how's that been uh, been working for you? And what has that opened as far as doors for? Uh, the project and, and possibly this book also in the future.
1: Yeah. So the, the Joseph Smith papers podcast, it's, it's what we call a podcast mini series. It's not ongoing. Um, the first vision a Joseph Smith papers podcast is six episodes. You start on episode one, episode six ends and it's done three and a half hours, total length or about three hours, I guess. And you can binge it or you can listen to it slowly. You can listen to it twice, but the whole idea was, um, for and the primary audience is, is Latter day Saints today or Mormons today, um, but also anyone interested in learning the history of Joseph Smith and the Mormons. Um, with the Joseph Smith papers, our primary audience is scholars, right? We publish these big, what are essentially reference books, they're not the type of book you keep at the bedside table and read, <laughs> but right? I don't think anyone but us reads them cover <laughs> to cover, um, but people are especially non-scholars people without phds in history who have an interest in joseph smith and the mormons they are hungry to know the research discoveries we are making on the joseph smith papers project Mm -hmm. they want access to this information and the podcast was designed as a way of making it accessible and digestible and so i i am a huge npr nerd and mm-hmm. I listened to a lot of podcasts and the first vision podcast, we essentially created by, you know, imitation. And I'd probably say if anyone's ever listened to this American life um, or thir- BBC had a podcast called 13 minutes to the moon and uh, Dolly Parton's America was another one. Yeah. And I listened to these and their, their ability to tell stories and sometimes to take really complicated ideas and break it down, not as like a teacher or tutor, but just in telling the stories through narration and through interviews, they take really complicated subject matter, and they make it accessible and digestible. And they're just masters at this. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at that and said, hey, can we do something like that with key events in Joseph Smith's life? And so his first vision is essentially what Latter-day Saints call it today, his first vision of deity. In in 1820, Joseph Smith claimed that at the age of 14, he had a vision in which he saw God. Mm-hmm um let's and this podcast isn't trying to prove or disprove those claims that's not what religious history is but it's let's understand the world in which joseph smith lived to lead him to pray and claim to have this vision what's what have the ramifications of the story been and and so yeah it's six episodes narrative style and we kind of just put it out there let's see what happens Hmm. and i I had some high hopes but it, it just exceeded them it caught fire, and, and this was the bicentennial year of Joseph Smith's first vision, so it was 2020, mm-hmm. and and we had over 1.2 million people oh, download wow. and stream it, um, wow. which blew my mind, right? And and yeah, um, hmm. it's exciting, and I, for me, it, it confirms two things: one, that there is a hunger and thirst among regular men and women who aren't scholars to Mm -hmm. engage with good history, Mm -hmm. but it has to be presented right. Right. It's very easy as a scholar to say, we want the general public to come to us on our terms. Mm -hmm. And and, and, while I'm not saying like compromising the integrity of our research, that's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But taking our our rigorous research standards and taking this, these discoveries and let's present them in a way that the general public can engage Mm -hmm. and, and these narrative podcasts are one way of doing it. It's not the only way, but for me, it really kind of confirmed that this, this mode, this, this presentation has a lot of potential to bring his good history to the
0: public. Yeah. Accessibility is the key. Yeah, you which know, well, of course you
1: know all about because that's so much about what you're doing with your channels and your brand. Um,
0: so I, I, I'm probably preaching to the choir, and keep <laughs> right. preaching all because uh, you know people. A lot of people are getting the experience with accessibility for the first time because of the pandemic we're going through, and now they're getting history and mass in different formats. So it's great to hear it from other people as well. They're tired of hearing me talk about it. <laughs> you know, and talk about accessibility and getting on multiple platforms and doing all this. It's great to hear other uh, historians, other organizations talking about making history accessible, because for far too long, I think we've thought of it as this ivory tower thing. You don't touch it. It's, you know, if you're not a quote expert, you shouldn't say anything. And now the accessibility has made us all students in different ways. And I, I really appreciate your words on that, Spencer.
1: Well, yeah, thanks. And, and yeah, and public history has been a field for a long time, right? right? And so often we think of it in its more institutional way, the National Park Service, museums, libraries, archives, et cetera. Uh, but digital media is opening up this whole new world, mm-hmm. podcasting, YouTube, you know, vlogs, th- the ways that we, we need to go where the public is. We need to keep right. our high standards of of good research and critical thinking but yeah, we need to be in the spaces where people already are to reach them with this history.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more with that. And I don't even believe in meeting people halfway. I'll go where they are, <laughs> and I oh, will yeah, find. Right. I will find you, and we will talk. And, and all that. I, love it. I uh, love it, Spencer. What's next for you? Have any Have any plans for uh, any more podcast, blogging, books? What, yeah. What's next? Yeah,
1: so so with my work with the Joseph Smith Papers project, they'll continue to be, you know, the volumes of that project coming out. We have another podcast mini-series that's coming out. Uh, on another event in Joseph Smith's life, uh, the building of the Nauvoo temple. What's exciting here is the response has been so positive that this one's actually gonna be translated into Spanish and Portuguese, which yeah. translating a podcast is a whole new experience. I, I won't. I don't speak Spanish or Portuguese, so you're gonna have voiceovers and things like that. Um, right, <laughs> excuse me. Um, I have resisted the urge that so many writers and scholars have when you're working on one project and you get a little bit stalled, you know, all these new ideas of new projects come to mind and it's always very tempting to start on them before you finish the one you've already started. Um, and so I've resisted that so far. I do have a book in progress with a a colleague named Jennifer Dorsey. She's at Siena college in, in New York and it's a history of New York's burned over district. And so it's going to be, um this is gonna be with cornell university press and it's a it's a documentary issue so it's essentially let's tell this story of religious revivalism that swept western new york um from about 1790 till 1860 but let's look at the political and social ramifications too but let's tell that story with documents Mm -hmm. so it's not like a chapter book instead we're picking like 50 or 60 documents that essentially showcase what was going on Mm-hmm. uh in a way that you know essentially we're kind of the the mediators or the narrators or but we're letting the documents themselves do the the speaking and so that's been a project that's been underway for several years and we're, we're wrapping it up here this year and hopefully it's available in a in a year and a half maybe two years uh, fingers crossed you you never know how <laughs> is, so. that's true. Um, and, and, but yeah, I, I have some ideas too about my next kind of solo-authored book, and nice. um, I, I'm thinking about going back in time. My first book was on Revolutionary America, and I'm I, I have some ideas going back there, but they're still kind of um, in the uh, inc- incubator, so to say, of, of figuring out exactly what they are.
0: Yeah, well, kudos to you for being able to stick with one thing for the most part, because people like me were all over the place with projects, and it's kind of like. Okay, this week we're talking revolution. This week we're talking religious history, and we're so it's great to have to see other historians who can keep it on a level playing field while some of us are just going crazy with different things. Well, I've been more successful lately. That hasn't always
1: been my story, so I can't I can't claim perfection on that front.
0: <laughs> it's a work in progress for me. So, uh, but I I really appreciate you coming on, Spencer, and talking about your book. Everybody, there's links in the comment section whether you're on facebook or youtube uh to the book joseph smith for president the prophet the assassins and the fight for american religious freedom Uh, i have also placed links in there for the joseph smith papers so you can go check those out we've been doing a lot on digital history here on the on the tattoo historian pages for a while. And it's great to have an art digital history project to, to be putting up there. Spencer, thank you so much for your time, my friend. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for the invitation. I've, I've enjoyed myself very much. You're very welcome.